Hey guys, I know it's been a while since my last episode in early November. The end of the semester and subsequent holiday season always throws me for a loop, but at the very least, I'll be more intentional in the future with sharing updates about my hiatuses. Anyway, we're back with our first episode of 2020, and I should also mention Happy New Year. Ashley and I always start off the year with a theme that we use as sort of a mantra and a target to keep us focused throughout the year. And for 2020, our theme is impact. I think the conversation in this episode speaks to this theme in more ways than one. And even the title of this episode, The Four Foot Ladder, lends itself to impact as well. But to find out what The Four Foot Ladder is all about, you'll just have to listen to the episode for yourself. I got to sit down today with my very own mother for our episode to speak about an enormously important discussion, addiction. Full disclosure, my mother suffered from an opioid addiction for well over a decade while I was growing up, and for better or worse, it shaped me into the man that I am today. Knowing how extremely prevalent this issue is in many lives across the country, and given the focus of 2020 being aimed at impact, I felt that it was rightly time to be a little bit more honest and open in our conversations with this podcast. It'll be the same theme you see running throughout future episodes and on our Instagram page at Woodbury Voice. So please be sure to follow along as we focus our year on impacting our communities and moving the city forward together with one voice. Enjoy. All right. So I'm here with Rhonda Hunter, who I affectionately call my mother. How you doing, Ma? Hey. (laughs) So... This is my first episode of 2020, and I thought that this was a really important time to focus on some bigger, larger issues going on in the city. And um, Ashley and I, we always take a second at the beginning of each year, and we try to figure out what our theme is going to be, you know, this kind of motto Mm -hmm. for the year to make sure that we keep ourselves focused on our goals, our resolutions, what we want to get done. So this year, we have come to the conclusion that 2020 is going to be the year of impact for us. And we're moving in different directions. She's getting her master's. I'm finishing up my second master's and pushing toward a PhD, new consulting work. And obviously, the context of our family has really always been one, I, I would like to think of impact in the long term. And so I think it was rightly timed for me to start thinking about how to be able to leverage this podcast and that goal and that motto of that theme of 2020 and to bring up the ever important topic of addiction. Right. So, you know, I want to qualify and preface all of this conversation with the fact that this is obviously something that's touched our lives personally and you specifically. So I thank you for showing that courage and showing that willingness to be a part of this conversation and to know that this is obviously for the greater impact of reaching other folks across the city and other other places you know this this podcast hits a lot of different states across the country which i'm really excited about so you know the impact yeah the impact there is is real and it's felt so thank you for that i want to start off going all the way back to you as a person Tell me a little bit about yourself and, you know, what you want the listeners to know about you. I was raised in South Jersey, Washington Township slash Woodbury area most of my life and diehard Woodbury fanatic. Mm-hmm. 
graduated in 89. From Woodbury High. From Woodbury High School, mm-hmm. yes. Um, where I met uh, my husband, who graduated in 88, mm-hmm. uh, Sylvester. I grew up in a single-parent home where, even though it was a single-parent home, my father was still an influence in the home. And uh, sometimes I weigh, would it had been better if that relationship was not the way that it ended up being? Meaning, would it have been better if my father was just not in and out of my life as opposed to him not being in it at all? Mm-hmm. Like, what would have been the greater mm-hmm. impact? I think we always go back and forth with what ifs. Yeah. And life is what it is. Mm-hmm. So, my father was a chronic alcoholic and he was the first one to introduce marijuana and alcohol to me at the age of 15. So at that age, I had compromised what values and morals I thought I had mm-hmm. or didn't really have. Uh, right. they, they, they were warped because I was willing to engage in that type of behavior you know, Mm -hmm. with my father just to have that relationship, that connection. And it took some time for me to not focus so much on my father, but also my mother, who who was, she was a sickly woman Mm -hmm. who took a lot of medication. And it wasn't until I was further in my journey of substances that I realized that Whenever there was an ailment that I had, if my head hurt or my stomach hurt or, you know, my big toe hurt, mm-hmm. you know, mommy had this box of pills that you you just, you know, you just went to her and she just made everything better. Right. You know, and that's just what moms do. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I was further in my journey that I saw how that impacted me because my mother was the first one that gave me an opiate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so it's kinda like my life was predestined or predisposed mm-hmm. to be affected by substances. All of my family members were bar owners or speakeasy kind of things where that's what you did. It was barbecues and mm-hmm. drinking and that's what I grew up thinking, like, oh, I can't wait to grow up to do this because this is what you do. Right. And realizing in my journey with substances that they did something to you emotionally as well. You mm-hmm. know, they amplified the euphoria in, mm-hmm. in a way that teenagers are not supposed to be exposed. Right. So that does warp and dwarf you psychologically and and emotionally you know you're stunned 15 is your first experience with this mind and mood altering substance so psychologically at 15 you're stifled right there right at 15 so now at 48 years old i feel like i'm going through this big unthaw right and unraveling the aftermath right and trying to put those pieces back together 
of where those substances were introduced and influenced in my life and how that thread this tapestry of mm-hmm. addiction and recovery yeah. uh, to where I am now. From 15 to 48 mm-hmm. to have to go through those cycles and come to this point where you find yourself just now unthawing, like you said. I have friends, when we grew up in Williamstown, Mm -hmm. a lot of them also dealt with substance abuse issues, and they they didn't make it. Wow. Right. And just thinking about the fact that you can, notwithstanding the fact that it was difficult and it was a struggle, but that a lot of people don't get to 15 to 48. Right. You know, and thinking about what that means. I mean, in New Jersey alone, you know, we've had hundreds of thousands of cases like this. Yes. And to know that it does touch and affect everyone in some way or shape or form. To just think about those years that you've kind of come along. And obviously, this is a podcast about Woodbury. Mm -hmm. And so I want to know what it was like for you growing up in Woodbury. Not saying that it had any major effect on your addiction by any means. But what that looked like for you and how those influences led you to where you are today? One of the things growing up, going to Woodbury High School, if I remember correctly, I had a lunch, which means we had to to be back at 12.09. And at that time, you could leave the premises of Woodbury High School. Mm -hmm. And so there's... Must be nice. Yes, (laughs) it it was. It was lovely. Yeah. In a a good way. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a smoke shop and there was Kathy's. And you could go in and order French fries and hamburgers and sodas and vanilla Cokes and cherry Cokes. And that was just the spot for you to hang out, you know, Mm -hmm. and really good if, you know, you had your own booth when Mm -hmm. you went in, you know, like this is right. This is reserved. This is right. Right. The booth. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. The booth Mm -hmm. and the smoke shop and, you know, definitely Broad Street, Naples, Nut Shop. Mm hmm. Owls, just those establishments, you know, being able to go to them, you're allowed to leave, which also means you're allowed to do whatever else you want to do, which includes smoking cigarettes, Mm -hmm. smoking weed, Mm -hmm. you know, or whatever else the group of people you were interacting with, whether it was drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that Woodbury at Halloween, we did the um, window painting. All down Broad Street. Right. So we're, Which they still do a little bit. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, at the Dollar Scene. Right. Mm-hmm. So the crew I was associated with were window painting, and we have big thermoses filled with alcohol. Window painting and drinking at the same time. Right. So in high school, substances were, were big. You know, mm-hmm. there were keg parties and just parties. Right. Where it was definitely substances were plentiful mm-hmm. and the impact of that in the city is that you know kind of I, I guess there was a community of where people looked out for one another right and people were concerned about one another that you know if somebody saw you hanging out too much you were inebriated too much that maybe somebody would tap you on your shoulder you know like mm-hmm. Are you, you good I, I see this is kind of like a pattern that kind of village right is no longer existent I, I don't see it because leaving 
Woodbury for some years Mm -hmm. and initially starting to raise a family to then coming back to Woodbury for you guys to complete your sophomore, 15, 16 years old, you've already made significant connections in Williamstown. Here mm-hmm. you are now in Woodbury. So when I came back in 2010, I did not see that same community mm-hmm. connection yeah. where people were concerned about people. One another. Right. Yeah. There's not even a, a bench uh, in front of the stores because it's said you don't want the vagrants or people who who shouldn't be bus stops so there's definitely that lack of connection in Woodbury that I saw an interesting concept given that perspective you're in the the late 80s early 90s and the way that Woodbury looks is completely different than 20 years later definitely and you know what does that mean then for the way that you grew up as a kid or as a teenager in high school and what does that mean for the kids that are growing up or in high school now i know that when i graduated from woodbury high in 2012 it was completely different for me because we were coming from williamstown my graduating class was almost 500 deep right and in a split second you shot that down by like a fifth i think there were maybe 107 kids in my graduating class bigger than mine <laughs> they're not they're not that big Mm-mm. But interestingly enough, at least I thought with the group of friends that I made that we did have a little bit of that connectedness. I was on the tennis team and that kind of split me off into my own specific group of folks that I could hang out with. Mm -hmm. But really at the end of the day, it felt like all the friends that I made were pretty much on the same page. Everybody had their, you know, there were those little outliers that they went off and did their own thing no matter who they were with. But it's interesting now it's eight years almost since I graduated high school, looking back on it, you always kind of wonder, like, is that something that the kids are still feeling, right? Like, I felt like I had it while I was in high school, and then I went off to Philly for undergrad. So I can't speak to whether or not folks who stayed still feel that way, saw it thin out, kind of dry up even more than what they felt like it was. And I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on... What does that community look like? What does that village look like? How do we how do we make sure that it stays intact a little bit more? Not Ooh. to put you on the spot as yeah, like an expert of community yeah. development. <laughs> I know that that's usually my my expertise, but well, you got it from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I've learned is that it really is based on the individual mm-hmm. with the age of technology now where uh, social media has just kind of taken us into this new phenomenon almost of how we interact and communicate Mm -hmm. with each other because you'll text somebody and and you'll see someone on social media that you haven't seen in 10 years yet you know kind of what's going on in their everyday day-to-day lives because you see it on social media Mm -hmm. but you have not then made that outward connection of physical Mm -hmm. communication of looking somebody in their face Mm -hmm. and talking to them and connecting with them Mm -hmm. so i think that has created a barrier in fostering that community connection Mm -hmm. I believe that few can do much. You know, like it, it doesn't take a whole lot mm-hmm. of people, but I do believe that there are a set of 
individuals in the community of Woodbury who do still care about not just themselves and their families, but the community in which they live in Mm -hmm. and how they can impact it Mm -hmm. to make it better so that that person then will turn around and do the same exact thing that you have done, which will add and multiply Mm -hmm. that connection. Right. So how do you begin to foster that? It is individually Mm -hmm. and as a community as a whole, you know, we look to our leadership, which is city council. So, you know, everything kind of flows head down. And so the community head is then responsible for initiating that impact into areas and circumstances and situations that aren't that comfortable right. and easy to talk about right. such as addiction mm-hmm. uh, because it has you know it has a stigma yeah you know it has a, I have it, that note written down actually I want to get to that stigma in a little bit too because okay. I know that it is pervasive and it feeds into a lot of the the actions that we see the way that we develop that community the policies that we put in place the impact that it has but it sits at such a high level that not a lot of people see it, mm-hmm. right? Like it's so invisible, but so real. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get too into that, we're talking about this idea of developing community in general. But obviously, this episode specifically is still kind of focused around addiction. One of the things that is probably the most important, at least from the way that I saw it from a different perspective, realizing that community support was such a big component of healthy recovery mm-hmm. for folks who are, are dealing with addiction. Essential. Yeah. Talk to me about your communities, your support teams, your networks that helped you progress. Whew. Kind of been hit or miss, though. <laughs> <laughs> I said uh, it's ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. I'll say. But I liken it to being trapped in a 24-foot hole. And you have a 20-foot ladder. Right. So you can climb up to 20 feet, Mm -hmm. but you still have four feet that you can't get out of. Right. So that support, to me, looks like that other four feet. Wow. Because there's so much individual responsibility in recovery. Sure. The support, it's vital. Yeah. Because this person is still in the hole even though they have climbed to the maximum of their ability which is that 20 foot ladder that's the max that they can get to Mm -hmm. yet they're still in that hole so that support is what gives the individual that other four feet that's needed to get out of the hole so for me support in the community doesn't look like people whispering about you or or talking about you or formulating rumors about you or putting so much condemnation on you that there's no room for conviction for you to be able to see yourself because the individual that's addicted is in denial. They're unable to see and it's almost as if they're caught in a trap of some sort. Just as if an animal is caught in a trap, it's unable to get out of it on its own. It needs assistance. Mm. And so I do know that the city 
they facilitate certain NA groups and AA groups and, mm-hmm. and certain recovery groups. I do know that there's more recovery homes being established in the city. And most of those programs, the AANA, those are um, usually religious organizations that, that I've seen host them. I don't know what other programs you know about in the city that, that folks are hosting. Actually, now that you say that, that is true. Mm-hmm. And that's an issue. As far as the city not providing them. Yeah, Yeah. that's an issue. Resources uh, need to be available. And regardless of religion, Mm -hmm. that support of understanding addiction, not just for the one that's addicted, Mm -hmm. but for that individual's family and loved ones, Mm -hmm. you know, so that there's an understanding and awareness of of what's going on. Because if, if you can understand the thing... You can grasp it mm-hmm. an, enough to to be able to endure. So this topic specifically has touched your life. Mm-hmm. Tell me about where you think things kind of really started rolling in terms of your addiction. It was through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, then becoming a mother and, and having children, that kind of partying phase kind of died off. And... I'm married now. I have a family. Mm-hmm. I was in an automobile accident, and that initially is what introduced, I was introduced to prescription pain medicine. So that opened up Pandora's box, right. basically. And then uh, some years later, I was in a more severe automobile accident, requiring different surgeries and things. And that alongside of my youngest sister's diagnosis of cervical cancer kind of pushed me over the edge Mm -hmm. to where I didn't think that I would come back. And this is really important for folks to understand when you hear disparate arguments about addiction and who should be treated for what. And I always see posts on Facebook about why does it cost so much for insulin or epinephrine, but people who are suffering with addiction get Narcan for free. Mm. And you think about the fact that just like the diabetes or the the allergies that this person has developed is something outside of their control, but we don't look at addiction in the same way. Mm-mm. We don't look at addiction as something that was outside of someone's control just as it was diabetes or an allergy that has always been kind of prevalent in their body right? from whenever. And we look at the way that we treat that so differently because, again, going back to this idea of the stigma, you know, in this case, it seems like for some reason, all of these choices were completely and consciously made by this person suffering from addiction. Mm. You didn't ask to be in two car accidents. Sure didn't. Sure didn't ask for your sister to have to deal with what she went through. And sure didn't. To not have that context and look at someone who is kind of slumping over in their chair or Mm. slurring their words Mm. or seems a little bit out of Mm -hmm. sorts Mm -hmm. and to just brush them off as an a quote-unquote addict without the context i think is is so important to understand before you make that facebook post or before Mm -hmm. you ask that question Mm -hmm. just to really think about well what is the context here yes because i think that now this presentation of opioids has become classified as an epidemic. Mm -hmm. 
people are dying by the hundreds of thousands every year. But it is so prevalent that we classify it as an epidemic now Mm -hmm. and are are just now starting to realize that, well, wait, maybe there is something else beside just this conscious choice that I'm going to take this pill or I'm going to pick up this needle Mm -hmm. or I'm going to grab this patch Mm -hmm. or I'm going to snort this whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, it's really important for folks to understand that there is always context to what folks are going through when it comes to addiction. And it's just not as simple as, well, they get Narcan for free. Why don't I get insulin for free? Right. You know? And I read this really interesting quote said something along the lines of just because someone else is suffering doesn't make them your enemy. Yes, there are people who are suffering from diabetes and they need insulin and it costs an arm and a leg to afford it every month. And people are dying by the hundreds, you know, not being able to afford insulin, which is its own type of issue that I think a lot of people really need to focus on, you know, the cost of prescription drugs in general. Definitely. But just because someone is dealing with something different than you doesn't mean that they are automatically your enemy. That's that individuality issue that I was speaking of earlier Mm -hmm. that there's just this lack of empathy right you know that people are just concerned about themselves you know I don't care that you're on fire I'm burning and aside from Jesus I don't know what the antidote to that is and it is like you said we were talking about you know it is it's it's about community in that case you know like you can't look at it like it's this is my own problem and you have your own and if I try to help you with your problem. That takes away from me. Yes, that you know? means I'm not going to get help. Right, exactly. But, but that's not the case. Exactly. You know? And I think that that it's is not. probably the root cause of most of that stigma is to think of addiction as something that takes away from my ability to help my own self mm. in helping someone else. Wow, and that's I, altruism. And a lot of people don't believe that that exists. And if they do, they believe that it exists still for a selfish purpose. Right. I'm helping this person to make myself feel good. But going back about car accidents, the personal loss, juggling a family and trying to figure all of this kind of dynamic out. What was the most terrifying part of that whole experience? I'm going to jump in to make sure that you feel a little bit better about this question by saying, what was the most enlightening part of that experience that you would want to share with folks too? I would definitely say being in the hospital, the overdose that I experienced, having to be placed in medically induced coma for 10 days. I, I would say that was probably the most enlightening. And... Being able to come away from every and anything that I've ever known. I've always been in New Jersey, always been either in Williamstown or Woodbury, Mm -hmm. and never been away from you guys ever. Uh, So being able to come outside of all of that and being able to go to North Carolina for five months to Dove's Nest was, I guess, the knot. You know, you can you can tie something like the overdose was was the tie, mm-hmm. um, but North Carolina and Dove's Nest was kind of like the knot. Right. That kind of secured it. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, your life is going to be different now, mm-hmm. and whatever has to happen from this point, you'll be okay. And it was. Yeah. And um, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, obviously this was something that I had dealt with personally as well. Mm-hmm. And I do think that me and, and all of my other siblings would agree that this really was the turning point, you know, where we realized mommy's doing something different. It was really difficult for us to get to that point, 10 years in the making, mm-hmm. to be able to finally say, this is the knot that we finally get to see. But it has been a very steep slope upwards for you since then. What has that felt like these last five or six years of your recovery compared to those 10 years of of being in the middle of an addiction? Surreal. Mm -hmm. And so part of what helped me stay in that addiction, it wasn't just the physical dependence. It was also needing to anesthetize myself mm-hmm. and not wanting to be present in life not believing in myself the guilt and shame yeah that came along with that stigma because you kind of think you know why well, I, I know better I have a wonderful husband a beautiful family why can't you get it together mm-hmm and the guilt the guilt was just equally as crippling as the addiction itself so it's kind of like i feel mm. like i kind of battled an addiction you know like half and half you right. know? like it was kind of like half you know the addiction but the other half was the guilt and the shame right and so guilt says well, i made a mistake but shame says i am the mistake mm. and that shame kept me trapped but to imagine Okay, I can. I'm not a dummy, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I can do certain things, and to actually see those things evolving from something that was presently not at this time to emerging, to improving, to mastered, it really is miraculous. Yeah, and honestly, I just I have such a humility and gratitude for life being able to be here because there are so many other people that are not yeah there was so many opportunities where i could have should have Mm -hmm. and did die right but for some reason yeah you know it's not time right what do you think made some of that possible you know are there decisions that you made or there people in your life experiences that you've had that helped kind of make that trajectory not necessarily easier but at least possible oh definitely my friendship with lenny has been impactful and her love for poetry and what she's accomplished with compiling her poetry and books poetry has become such a coping mechanism you know it's become so cathartic for me not just in writing but also in actually sharing mm-hmm. and spoken word part that she played in helping me pick that back up and polish that back off and helping me make that connection again and that that support and that wanting to see me win and it's something for someone to come into your life that wants to see you do good and doesn't want anything from you like there's no ulterior motive or agenda Mm -hmm. you know that they just 
they love you. They think you're cool. They want to yeah. see you succeed. I had not had a lot of those people. That was my mother. Right. And so I knew when she closed her eyes, that was gone. Also, my husband, his enlightenment through the process, his growth through the process, because just because you're ready doesn't mean other people are ready. So I have to be respectful that it was bad for a long time. So I can't, well, I'm good now. You know, you got to get with the program kind of thing. I have to respect where he is and Mm -hmm. it takes time right it takes time even for all of you right you know even till now you know i it's this awakening this unthawing we're realizing things that were talked about people futuristically you know like people would say to me you know your kids aren't always going to be in diapers yet here i sit in your home right looking at all that you've accomplished and you made reference to you not being more supportive. And I really don't know what else you could have done. You know, you were a child. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is important for folks who are dealing with this in family situations. Whoever is listening to this podcast to, to know that when we were growing up, it never really... I don't know exactly when the switch kind of turned on for me to realize that all right, this isn't just mommy's problem. Mm. There's seven people in this house Mm. and mommy's the one dealing with it personally, Mm -hmm. but this is touching all of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I did my own research as I was kind of maturing and trying to figure out this whole outside looking in process and realizing I'm not outside, I'm inside. This is just a part of my life as much as it is any anybody else's in this house. And learning about the ways that families grow up with an addicted parent, you know, and like these personalities that you take on hero complex or the black sheep complex or like quiet child. Right. Yep. And I think that it's important for families to realize that first, you know, that this isn't just one person's problem when you're living in a household with someone who is dealing with an addiction. You, in a sense, are going through your own addiction. You're going through your own process of figuring out how to recover from these experiences and these traumas and these sufferings just like everybody else in the house and you do it differently you know you you shut people out or you focus on your education or you make bad friends or you take up a different hobby but that it's important to realize that the dynamic that happens in the household it has a lasting effect and i appreciate so much the way that you and daddy have looked at it in the last few years as something that we can't just pretend like that last 15 years didn't happen right. and that you guys aren't partially who you are because of it. Right. But just sitting down and saying, first off, I'm sorry Yeah. that this was not the intention. Kids aren't necessarily supposed to grow up this way. Right. You are who you are because of it and you might be happy or you might not yet be happy with where you are. But that is the reality that what you grew up with led you at least partially to where you are today. Yes. And for better or for worse, I'm sorry. And to have that maturity to recognize that and to take onus of that and to just be open and honest about it because that's the reality. We can't, we can't neglect it. We can't avoid it. You know, that's who we are. It's part of our story. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be able to have this episode for folks, not just, you know, to, to think about addiction in general, but to kind of just, you know, this is also for us for for us to have this more in-depth conversation about the strangeness of it all like you said being in a house now with 
a furnished office that I designed myself. And like, my father is a drug and alcohol counselor now. And like, you've got a flourishing spoken word business. Just the the things that you said, we, we always spoke it into existence, but now it's kind of existing. Right, right. You know, right. and to know that our case isn't necessarily unique, but you know, it wasn't ever really something that we thought could come to fruition. Right. And to see that it has in spite of, I think is important for folks to realize there's so much dynamic in what happens as you mature in this. Yeah. And like you say, life lasts and the creek don't rise. You get to see it. Yeah. To that next step. It's important to give back, to really think Definitely. about how you have that conversation, not just with yourself or with your family now, but with this community. Definitely. Thinking about this impact that it can have. I want to take a quick break before we get into this next part, because there's three specific topics that I want to kind of touch on before we finish up. Okay. Woodbury Voice has been growing and becoming more popular, so I thought it would be a cool idea to start highlighting the city in new ways. So I started doing advertisements. Since this is the parent episode, it seems, I wanted my first ad to highlight my own father's business, Joel Creations. My dad started his own custom jewelry design business because he wanted to show his kids that even when you're having trouble finding a job, you can start on yourself. Simply take what the Lord has placed in your hands and have a vision for it, then act. He started making simple bracelets with plastic beads from Walmart and found that people loved the designs so much that they started asking to buy them. Over the past two years, Joel has moved from plastics to gemstones and other quality materials that appeal to a wide variety of customers. I have a few of my own Joel bracelets and love the way they complement my look when I need a new way to kind of elevate my style for the day. My favorite is what I call the DeLorean bracelet, which is a really cool space style looking black stone with strips of incandescent green and blue. Very cool and super stylish. Joelle prides itself on customer service, quality, attention to detail. Everything is inspected by the CEO to ensure quality and excellent standards, customization, and uniqueness. If you're looking for high-quality, customized jewelry at the prices you can afford, then check out Joelle Creations at joelcreations.com. And for our Woodbury Voice listeners, you can get an exclusive discount by using the promo code VOICE for an additional 20% off any custom product. That's joelcreations.com, promo code VOICE for 20% off any custom-designed Joel product. Now back to the show. So we're back, and I want to talk about three specific things I think are a little bit more broad about addiction in general. So we kind of already touched on stigma. Just before the break or a little bit before that, we were talking about this idea of recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you went to North Carolina. Dove's Nest was a huge turning point for your recovery. Woodbury recently has seen an influx of what are called Oxford houses or mm -hmm. recovery homes. I don't know. I don't think that that was a setup at Dove's Nest that you were in a house necessarily. It's actually how Dove's Nest started. Okay. And that's how a lot of these places do mm -hmm. start where most of this work gets done. Mm -hmm. You've got seven or eight people living in a home, what looks like a regular residential place. Mm -hmm. But this is actually where they build that community, they create those networks, they have programming, and they figure out what is the next step toward my recovery. Yep. I want to know your thoughts specifically about this influx of Oxford houses because we've, I've seen contentious arguments. Mm -hmm. I've seen differing views and opinions about whether they're good for the community, whether 
they're bad for the community, what it means to have one. You know, I, I just I don't understand how it's looked at as a bad thing because just like you just spoke about someone who had diabetes, would we be talking about people being upset about people living in a house who had diabetes and there was this underground tank of sugar or something mm-hmm. you know or like, like there's a dialysis center moving across the street from your house right. yeah <laughs> you know, like how are people supposed to get it together mm-hmm. like you have to live somewhere right you you have to have a roof over your head mm-hmm as a human being, you want a roof over your head. You want to lay in a bed with a pillow yeah. and some sheets and a cover. You want to be able to go to the bathroom and turn on some hot water right. with some soap and take a bath. You want to be able to wash your clothes somewhere. Yeah. You want to be able to cook a meal somewhere on a stove and not in a microwave mm-hmm. or in a on, on, in a hot pan. Mm-hmm. So those are just human dignified things that people need just basic Mm -hmm. how are people in recovery supposed to learn i can hear the argument well people that are diabetic are not going to steal to get what they need Mm -hmm. so do people in recovery relapse sure do people in in recovery that relapse make mistakes that people make in active addiction Sure. In the same way that a 11-month-old baby who is learning how to walk, that baby who is learning how to balance themselves and people are standing there with their arms out, smiling, encouraging them, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And they fall, you say, oh, get up, get up. You can do it, you can do it. Mm -hmm. You don't beat the baby and kick the baby because the baby fell. Right. So where people fail to see the need, there needs to be a plethora of recovery homes wherever they are established. Mm -hmm. If they are all established in one area, then great for the one area. Mm -hmm. That means there's more opportunity for more people to get it together. Right. And truth be told, there's a lot of people struggling with a lot of things Mm -hmm. that just, but for finances, they would be in another situation. Right. uh, Which kind of has led to this opiate Mm -hmm. epidemic. You know, it it was a different dynamic in the 80s with crack it was kind of you know say no to drugs is your fault and today because it has crept into the homes of the people who kind of developed that philosophy and, and and way of thinking right you know that is now on their doorstep that it's now wait a minute this is a different this, story right, right. we got we got to do something about this mm-hmm. so are you bitter about that no Mm -hmm. let's garner the attention and for for what it is and for how a more awareness can be brought to the fact that save for the two accidents that i had i do not believe that my life would have been impacted Mm -hmm. the way that it was by prescription medication 
my life had already taken and that downtick from, you know, the teenage years and developing with a family. So here I am with these injuries and now I have this this issue. If it were not for that opportunity of being able to detach myself from myself. I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, you think about it, you got to reboot your computer, you know, you you got to charge your phone. There are times where you you especially in addiction and recovery, you have to detach, you know, yourself from yourself and yourself from mm-hmm. everything that you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. And just take that time out to pause to look and see, like, how did I get here? Yeah. Like, what happened? Yeah. And to begin to analyze and look at, okay, yeah, these things may have happened to me, you know. So you take ownership and responsibility for your part in and you know, Mm -hmm. no, I didn't ask to be in that accident. I was the one that went to all those doctor's appointments and asked those doctors for those prescriptions mm-hmm. once they started giving them to me. Right. You know, um, so one in, in taking ownership in, in yourself is, is important, mm-hmm. but it is, it, it's essential for someone to have somewhere to live, right. to be able to learn how to balance a checkbook, to even have a bank account, yeah. to have a job. Mm-hmm. To, to be able to just have some dignity about themselves. Because right. the more the individual works on themselves, the more impact they'll have on somebody else. Right. I worked at a nonprofit in Camden for two years, and this was their whole shtick, their whole bailiwick. They called it complex health and social needs. And so... You know, you think about addiction or you think about chronic diabetes or congenital heart disease or just any type of condition that, that affects someone's health so so much in their everyday life. And the fact that if you're if you're living with chronic kidney failure and you need dialysis regularly three to four times a week, but you don't have transportation or you don't have that stable housing or you have a child that you don't know what to do with because they're rowdy in school and they got suspended because they don't know how to process their feelings well at home and so now you don't have childcare, and you got to figure out how am I going to get to dialysis when I got to get my kid mm-hmm. these are all the contextual social issues that exacerbate someone's health where you say all right well I can't deal with dialysis today because I don't know what to do with my kid I don't even know how I'm going to get there my foot hurts like crazy and I don't feel like getting up but that makes the the disease worse. Yes. But you don't realize that there are so many other barriers to get from where you are in the morning as soon as you wake up to dialysis. Yes. That most of the time it persists where now you've got an amputee or now you've got to deal with a funeral because it's just become so difficult to hurdle all those barriers. Yes. What you're saying, you know, the things like hot water, sheets, a roof, a stove to cook food on. Those are the bar- those are the li- what seem like little barriers that actually make it much easier for someone to say, "All right, I took a bath today. I've got clean clothes. I ate a little bit of something. Yes. Let me get to program now." Yes. Because I can do that. Yes. Because I'm clean, I'm washed, I'm fed. Yes. You know, 
And I think that that's such an important piece of understanding what folks who are dealing with addiction go through. Because most of the time, they they don't necessarily have those resources available. You know, they don't have a car to be able to get to where they That's need to get right. to. They might not even have the social support networks that they need to, to give them that encouragement. Hey, you got to get up. That's You've got right. a program this morning. It's really important for folks to understand these contextual needs of being able to just get through the day. Man. That was something that I had taken into my work in Camden to a new level when folks who are familiar with Camden, there's a methadone clinic downtown, mm-hmm. you know, right at the Paco station, right across mm-hmm. the street from City Hall at Fifth and Market. They were planning on moving the methadone clinic. I actually think it has unfortunately moved. And they were going to put it about a mile down Broadway in this community called Bergen Square. And the issue that a lot of folks had uh, was twofold. Folks who lived in Bergen Square didn't want a methadone clinic in their, their backyard. You know, not in my backyard is this kind of nimbyism that comes up a lot in protest literature and and critical race literature and just urban literature in general. But folks who wanted to keep the methadone clinic downtown, it would be more beneficial because you're closer to resources. You've got Walter Rand, you've got bus stations, you've got Patco. People who need that service can readily access it, you know, with the transportation. You've got City Hall right across the street, tons of resources there for folks to easily access. You've got restaurants, you've got a behavioral health clinic right up the street. Just so many more things exist here rather than a mile down the road. And I had kind of found myself caught in the middle of this, where a group of friends of mine in Camden had decided that we were going to take up a little bit of a fight and figure out how to keep the methadone clinic downtown, mainly because of the access to the folks who needed it and not necessarily in favor of the folks who didn't want it in their backyard. That was just kind of an indirect benefit to to those folks. But the purpose was to make sure that folks who needed the resources had access to them. Mm -hmm. And that was insane in a word. The, the, there was almost an underbelly to that conversation. We met with the, the man that runs that methadone clinic. We met with city council people. We met with potential developers. Um, and working at the Camden Coalition at the time, I thought that medically assisted treatment was such an important cornerstone of our work that it would become very easy to, to go up to the CEO or to my boss and my directors and say, hey, can you write a letter of support? Let city council, let the mayor know that we need to keep this methadone mm. clinic here. Oh, well, that's a little bit of a sticky situation. That's not something that we really delve too much into. It's outside wow. of our... And it was so funny because, you know, the folks that were funding this nonprofit were the ones who wanted to move the methadone clinic. And so you find yourself in this vicious... You know, like, it's it's almost like you're you're opening up this, you know, wound or you're unpeeling all these layers of an onion. Yeah. And the closer and closer that you get to the core, the more and more it stinks. Mm. And I'm realizing that it's such a thick extra layer wow. of figuring out what are the politics behind this? How does the city look at things like Oxford houses? And how do they look at the stigma of, of addiction in general mm-hmm. that, that lead to decisions being made where people are probably worse off than they should be. Right. Because you know? the people that are making the decisions never needed the policies to begin with. Right. And so this has always been something I have looked at in my own research in public policy and public administration is that if we are going to put policies in place that affect certain people, that impact certain people, then we need to make sure that they're at the table when we start the conversation. Wow. The whole process can be laid out, but if there's a certain target population or uh, an impacted community, 
we need to make sure that they're at the forefront mm -hmm. because if you guys are going to be impacted you need to either at least at the very least know what's coming down the pipe right but at the most actually influence the way that that moves down the process that would be nice yeah going again into this idea of medically assisted treatment you've got methadone you've got suboxone you've got narcan what are your thoughts about medically assisted treatment and recovery well in the beginning i've just heard horror stories you know that it was just this this suboxone mm -hmm. uh was just this horrible thing that because it was the parallel to heroin and methadone mm -hmm. and that you know it was hard to get off of it was just a substitute I heard of various different opinions, mm -hmm. but for myself, I had been given pretty much every medication but that. Mm. And what I never understood is that out of all of the medicine that I was ever prescribed, that no one ever prescribed it for me. Mm -hmm. And it, you're talking about suboxone, mm -hmm, right? Right, and it, and it was never. I didn't have too much of. Your father had his concerns that it would just be something else to abuse. Right. However, I kind of felt like this is my last chance at trying something. You know, I kind of feel like I had maxed out everything else right. at that point. And uh, becoming a patient at the Cooper Outreach Clinic, I know, was the piece that really brought it all together for me. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what medically assisted treatment was up until that point. After having my hip replaced and still being on an enormous amount of, of pain medicine, again, knowing that there's a doctor that I can talk to about issues, you know, and I, I don't have to hide or be afraid. If, if I don't say the right thing, I won't get a prescription. Right. Just being able to be transparent and honest with the physicians where I was, was the beginning mm -hmm. of that conversation for medically assisted treatment. And I'm looking at five years of my life being different. And I know that the medication that I take on a regular basis is what helps me. Right. You know, I know that. And um, I'm grateful for it. Mm -hmm. I, I believe more people should be introduced to it the same way that people who are diabetic uh, need insulin. And mm -hmm. so no one should be able to be the timekeeper on someone's process mm. of how long or how short someone should be right. on any type of medication because it is based on that individual. And it, it does. It gives the chance for those receptors in your brain to heal. Right. Because you, you keep hitting that dopamine receptor, you know, it's shot. Right. So being able to be rewarded with a little bit here with mm -hmm. a blocker that helps with cravings that mm -hmm. helps with urges mm -hmm. that so that you're able to start using a different part of your brain where right. you know you're starting to use critical thinking skills mm -hmm. you know and not just acting impulsively to satisfy that that receptor right. you know so that 
classical conditioning gets broken. Right. You know, and they're able to see themselves. And that medication, I mean, I've, I've weaned myself down to practically nothing. Right. On, on my own, under the direction of the doctors. But mm-hmm. that piece was part of that four-foot ladder. Right. You know, and I needed that to mm-hmm. get out. And so that support with my family, that network, the church that we found, the path of life, and all of those ingredients yeah. made this wonderful cake. Just like a process of making a cake, each individual ingredient by itself doesn't taste very good. Right. But when you mix it all together and you put some heat on it, right. you know, you get something pretty fantastic. Yeah. And that's kind of like where my life's been. Pretty fantastic. I think yeah. that that's a perfect place for us to start to wrap up. What are some of your final thoughts around this specific subject that you would want to share with our listeners? To be as supportive of anyone who is experiencing that to educate themselves on what opiate abuse is and come outside of yourself to we're so me focused yeah you know so that if you're looking at somebody else you're taking your mind off of whatever your focus is on you and like you said that this was about impact mm-hmm. and so you can't impact someone if you you haven't been impacted and you can't impact without connecting you have to make that connection yeah and I, I would just hope that I would be able to see more of that community connection I've endeavored in some things in the community in the past year or so I would like to become more involved in in establishing some type of outlet, not necessarily a recovery group, mm-hmm. but maybe an outlet, like a, a some type of cafe or something, you know, mm-hmm. or an, an open mic with comedy and art and, or music and mm-hmm. for individuals who, who are experiencing so that they can know that there's other things outside of substances yeah. you know there's life outside of substances yeah. you know cool yeah. all right well thank you mom i thank love you, you. Thank you. I love Thank you more. for joining me on this episode and i really hope that you guys glean some some really great stuff from this this year is going to look different it's going to look powerful it's going to look bold and we have to come together as a community to be able to to make sure that we do that with each other and for each other so please please do all that you can to help someone else out take the focus off yourself for a little bit think about your community and and let's do something for woodbury together thank you so much to my mom for sharing her story it never feels easier to be so open and vulnerable about such a chaotic part of our lives but we know that being on the other end of addiction is not too common either So sharing what we can, our wisdom and knowledge and love, we hope to have a greater impact on those who have the chance to listen. Happy New Year again. Talk soon.